I think you folks sang that last song like maybe you expect to go to heaven one of these days. I know I do, and I look forward to that time. There's some wonderful people that are going to be there that I want to be associated with. It's good to be back tonight, and we're so glad to have visitors in the assembly. We've had visitors every night during this meeting, and that, of course, is always encouraging to us. I'm especially glad to see Alfreda and Betty in the assembly. You know, we often announce preachers, and we're glad to have preachers. I'm always honored when we have preachers, but I'm just as honored when I have preachers' wives because they are the people behind the preacher. We wouldn't be very good preachers without them. So I'm glad to see them. Glad to see our other visitors with us tonight. Brother Smith was with us last night. We have his wife with us tonight. Why does the Church of Christ exist? Why does this congregation exist? Why don't we just join the denominational world and just kind of fade into oblivion? What is so different about this church? My lesson this evening has to do with that question. And I believe that we can answer it from the fact that this church and churches of Christ for more than 200 years have had a very distinctive plea that we restore New Testament Christianity in all of its purity and all of its simplicity. And that, of course, is the very reason that we exist. The restoration plea. You know, the concept of restoration is simply this, that we renew that which was originally true. I'll repeat that. That we renew that which was originally true. That is that we speak where the Bible speaks, that we're silent where the Bible is silent, that we do Bible things in Bible ways. We call Bible things by Bible names. In matters of faith, we're going to have unity. In matters of opinion, we will have liberty. But in all things, we will have charity. Or we'll have love for one another. Well, it's my purpose in this lesson this evening to talk about the origin of the restoration plea, the very reason for it, and of course the very meaning of the restoration plea. The first thing, of course, I want to talk about is the origin of the plea. In the latter part of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, there were some men all over the world that arose, such men as James O'Kelly in 1793. He was a Methodist. And then there was Dr. Abner Jones in 1800. He was a Baptist. Elias Smith in 1803. He was a Baptist. And Barton W. Stone in 1804. He was a Presbyterian. And then there was Thomas and Alexander Campbell in 1811. They were Presbyterians. And then there was Walter Scott 
In 1818, he was a Presbyterian. Now, of course, there were many others that were a part of the Restoration Movement. Now, they were not trying to have a Reformation Movement. The Reformation Movement had been in existence since the 16th century, and they saw the failure of it. They saw that there were hundreds of uh, divisions that occurred as a result of the Reformation Movement in, in spite of the fact that they was, these were very sincere men that were leading in that Reformation movement. But what we're talking about is a restoration. That is, we're seeking to produce or reproduce in all things the faith and the practice of that first century church. We're insisting upon a return to all of the simple teachings of Scripture and, of course, the abandonment of everything in religion that is contrary uh, to the Word of God. As these restorationists said, we want to speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. You know, these men made this statement. They pledged themselves not to have anything as a matter of Christian faith or duty for which there cannot be expressly produced a thus saith the Lord, either in expressed terms or by approved precedent. This is found in their declaration and address. In other words, they were trying to uh, introduce a, a, a unity in the religious world to bring together all of these people into one great uh, body of people. And I want to tell you that plea caught fire and there were thousands of people all over the country that accepted that plea and they became members of the church of the Lord. It was a very distinctive plea. And that, of course, is the reason that we exist. Well, what prompted that plea? What caused these men to call for a restoration? You know, we can appreciate the plea better if we can understand the reason that it was necessary. Well, it was called forth because that there had been a great falling away from the faith. There had been an apostasy. And so they were calling for people to return to the faith and to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints, according to Jude, the third verse. You know, the apostles warned about this time and time again. For instance, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 3, he said, Now the Spirit expressly speaks in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Take note of that. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There is going to be a departure from the faith, the apostle said. Well, he talked about it further. In 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, the first four verses, he said, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first 
And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as the as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So much could be said about all of those passages that I have just read. But the main point is the fact that there was going to be a departure from the faith. There was going to be a falling away of the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the apostle tells us that this was going to begin in the eldership of the church. That's very interesting to me. These men that were to be the leaders and the, the guide for the church, these are the ones with whom or in whom or from whom this falling away was going to take place. Paul gathered the elders of the church at Ephesus together down at Miletus, and he said these words to them, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says it's even among you elders that this departure is going to take place. You know, in the first century church, they always ordained elders in the plural number in the church, in every congregation. For instance, in Acts the 14th chapter, the 23rd verse, it says, so when they had appointed elders, plural, in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now, these elders, of course, were called pastors, that's shepherds. They were also called bishops, that means an overseer. And these men were to shepherd and they were to oversee the church. But then in a gradual departure from the faith, one elder, one prominent elder, assumed authority over all of the other elders. And he became the bishop of a local congregation. As time went on, they reached out to other congregations. And there was a metropolitan bishop. And then eventually there was a bishop over a diocese or over an area of people. And finally, there was the universal bishop in 606 AD who was the Pope of Rome. In addition to these th uh, changes that were made in the eldership of the Lord's church, there were hundreds of other changes that were made, such as a separate priesthood, infant membership, sprinkling for baptism, the sale of indulgences, instrumental music, the Latin mass, the worship of Mary, and a thousand more. And thus the church was was driven, as it were, into the dark ages. When the Bible was chained to the pulpit and the ordinary disciple of Christ did not have access to the blessed Word of God. Well, that brings us to the 16th century when the Reformation movement began. The eyes of some people were opened to all of the corruption that was going on in that apostate church. 
such men as Martin Luther of Saxony, of John Calvin of France, and then, of course, John Wesley of England. These were men who saw all of these corruptions that had taken place, and they labored to uh, uh, reform that apostate church. Well, what they were trying was an impossible task because you couldn't reform that corrupt church. It resulted in hundreds of other denominations with their own names and their own doctrines and their own practices. Well, I am eternally grateful for these men. They were trying an impossible task, but one thing they did is to point people back to the Word of God. And their motto was simply this, back to the Bible. The problem was they didn't go all the way back to the Bible. And that, of course, brings us to the Restoration Movement. As I said, in the 18th and 19th centuries, they saw men arise almost simultaneously all over the world. In the, in, the, in, in the world beyond these uh, borders, as well as in the United States of America. And they were pleading with these hundreds of denominations, hundreds of religious groups, that they return to uh, the original pattern. Men like the ones that I have just mentioned. What was their plea? Their plea was that we restore the apostolic church in its faith, its doctrine, its organization, its government, its unity, its terms of admission, and its worship, and so forth. The plea was simply this, my friends, that we believe that the church that Jesus Christ our Lord built, He built it exactly as He wanted it. And He didn't leave it as a matter of moment for us to change or us to alter in any way. You know, even the Lord Jesus Christ warned against apostasy. He said there would be false prophets that would arise. And then the apostles followed along and they told us that there was going to be a falling away. In fact, I'm told by those that are given to counting verses of Scripture that there are some 200 passages in the New Testament that warn against that. So the right thing to do was simply to build that which Jesus Christ built. Somebody made this statement. He said there is a continual need for the restoring of the faith of the founder. And of course that founder was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well that's the reason that we exist today. So we ask this question, what does this plea not mean? Sometimes, you know, we can understand what a, thing's me a thing means if we can understand what it does not mean. Well, in the first place, the restoration plea does not mean the reformation of some church or the reformation of the church. The church of our Lord does not need reforming. It needs no change whatsoever. Our Lord established it exactly as He wanted it and He didn't leave us uh, the ability or the right to change it. And so it does not mean the reformation of a church or the reformation of the apostate church. You know, John Wesley tried to reform the Church of England. 
And as a result, there came some 17 new churches. Secondly, it does not mean the establishment of another church. You know, when I first started to preach, I was told that there were some 250 denominations in the religious world. Today, they tell me that there are thousands of different religious groups with their own individual names and practices and worship and so forth. So we don't need the establishment of a, of a new church. What we need is the old church, the original church in its primitive faith and doctrine and simplicity. And then the restoration plea does not mean another denomination or another sect. You know, when you think of a denomination, you think of a sect, you think of division. And that is exactly opposite of what our Lord prayed for. In John the 17th chapter, he prayed that all of his disciples should be one. It's contrary to the plea of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, when he said that there be no divisions among you. Later, he also said that there be no schism or division in the body. 1 Corinthians 12 and 25. And then it does not mean another human creed, confession of faith, our human rule of faith and practice. Such manuals, my friends, have only produced divisions in the religious world. I think that we could show from history that there are hundreds of different religious bodies that have marshaled their armies or marshaled their banner, as it were, under all of these uh, religious uh, creeds and confessions of faith. You know, human creeds in essence simply say that God in His infinite wisdom was not able to provide for us an adequate guide. And of course that is completely false. So what does the plea mean? Well, it means the very thing that the title suggests. It means a restoration. It means a complete return to the original church. It means that we take up where the apostles left the church. And thus we reproduce and we restore New Testament Christianity in all things. You know, there needs to be a careful distinction between, between reformation and restoration. Reformation means the reaction to something that is wrong. That's what... Uh, Luther and Wesley and Calvin and the others were doing. They were reacting to the corruptions that were in the religious world of that time. But restoration simply means the restoring of that which is right. And that's what we are pleading for uh, uh, tonight. It means a restoration of the divine creed uh, and the one divine rule of faith and practice. You know, that word creed is a very interesting term. It comes from the Greek word, or from the Latin word, rather, credo. And it simply means, I believe. And so a person's creed is simply a summary of that which he believes. You know, we need to uh, draw a contrast between a creed and a rule. The creed is simply a summary of what we believe. The rule is simply the faith itself. 
So you might ask tonight, what is the creed of the New Testament church? Well, I think here is a good creed. That is the confession that every person must make that our sister last night made before we become Christians. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's an all-comprehensive creed. It is a true summary of our faith. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I believe in His Messiahship. He's the Savior of the world. If I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I believe in His Lordship, that He has all authority in matters religion. And if, he, if I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I believe in His divinity, that He is a part of the Godhead itself. So it's an all-comprehensive creed. But what about the faith and uh, the rule of faith and practice? What is that? Well, of course, the rule of faith and practice is the Word of God itself. Specifically, it is the New Testament. It's an all-sufficient and alone-sufficient creed, our rule of faith and practice. You know, the Apostle said in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all authority or all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The New Testament, my friends, is inspired or breathed by God. And it contains everything that we need to uh, direct us in our religious life. In James 1 and 21, he said, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And then, of course, the apostle said in Romans 1 and 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, for the Jews first and also for the Greek. And so that's our all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. The New Testament church was guided by only one rule, and that was the rule of God's word. In fact, the apostle said in Philippians 3 and 16, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mine the same things. Further, the restoration plea means the restoration of the faith and the practice of the apostles. The faith is simply the belief that they exercised and that they commanded. And it was a very personal faith, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The important question in that time was, not what do you believe, but in whom do you believe? If they believed in Jesus Christ, then they accepted His authority in all things. But also it was a faith that trust. That trust in Jesus to save us. Trust in Jesus to keep us saved. And then it was an obedient faith. It is a faith that obeys. Not only does it trust, but it also obeys. You know, sometimes we'll say, I, have, I believe in my physician. If you really believe in your physician, you will take his prescriptions. If you're not willing to do that, then you really don't have faith in him. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will accept what he says and do what he says. 
And of course the scriptures tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But then there of course must be the restoration of the practice of the apostles. That is all that they did, all that they preached, all that they taught, all they commanded, all that they wrote for universal observance by us. You know, in Matthew 28 and 20, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, He said, you go preach the Gospel. You make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. But He says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And you know, shortly before Jesus left this earth, He told His apostles that He was going to send the Spirit. And in John 16 and 13, he said, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. You and I, my friends, have access to all truth today. And therefore, our practice can be exactly what the practice of the first century church was. We'll do those things that they practiced. We'll do those things that they commanded. What they believe, we will believe. What they practice, we will practice. Further, it means a restoration of the original unity of the Lord's church. That primitive oneness of the body of Christ. Oh, what an awful havoc has been happened, has happened in our world today because of religious division. You know, it's enough to make the very angels weep and forget that they have been sent to do service for those that shall be heirs of salvation. And how displeasing it must be to the gracious Heavenly Father to behold the divided condition of His professed followers. You know, Jesus was concerned about unity. He prayed about it in John 17, 20 and 21. He said, I do not pray for these alone, that is just for the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That means you and me. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us that the world might believe that thou hast sent me. What is that unity? He said it was a unity in which we would be one as God and Christ are one. How are they one? They're one in nature. They're one in character. They're one in purpose. They're one in work. You and I are to be one in nature, character, purpose, and work. And Jesus went on in His prayer said that they may be one in us. And that's one and all the same as saying to be one in Christ because we're told in 2 Corinthians 5 and 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. If we are to be one, we are to be one in Jesus Christ. And that means one in the body of Christ. In Romans the chapter the fifth verse, the apostle talked about this unity of the body. He says, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So to be in Christ is to be in His body. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 that we're baptized into that body. 
and that that body is the church, according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. That's why it's so important for me and for preachers of the gospel and teachers of God's word to preach about the restoration movement, the restoring of that original church. Well, that is where that unity and that is where that salvation can be found. But it further means a restoration of the apostolic evangelism. That is that which the apostles preached in their efforts to bring men into the body of Christ. It was that original plan of salvation that they delivered unto men. We're to tell the people what they told the people. You know, Jesus in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Mark 16 and 16, Luke 24, 46 through 49, gave what we, we call the Great Commission. And in that Great Commission, He told the apostles that they were to preach the gospel. People were to believe that gospel. They were to repent of their sins and confess what they believed. And they were to be baptized. And as a result, they would be saved or they would receive the remission of their sins. Did the apostles carry out that commission? Certainly they did. It began on the day of Pentecost when the apostle Peter preached that first gospel sermon and people were so moved, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, he told them just exactly what Jesus told him to tell them. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we don't hear that much today in the religious world. You know, I read one time about George E. Flower, who many years ago became a part of what they called a union meeting in which preachers all over a certain area would hold a meeting together. And of course, they were from all different religious backgrounds. And Georgie Flowers simply asked them to allow him to read without any comment Acts 2.38. They refused him. And so many times today I think that that would be the case today. Because people accept belief. They accept repentance. But when it comes to baptism, somehow or other they just cannot accept baptism. And that's a mystery to me. Because when I read the book of Acts, I find all of these cases of conversion. And in every case of conversion, baptism is mentioned. On the day of Pentecost, the apostles said, Repent and be baptized. And in Acts 2.41, it said, Those that gladly received His word were baptized. Then when we read about Philip going up and preaching to the Samaritans about Christ, in Acts 8 and 12 it says, And when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then of course he was sent to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch learned enough about baptism that he wanted to be baptized. Philip told him, he said, If you believe, you may. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so in Acts 8 and 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he was baptized. Later, we read about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
In Acts 22 and 16, Ananias told him to arise and be baptized. In Acts 9 and 18, where it's telling about his conversion, it says immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Then later, we read about the conversion of the household of Cornelius, the first Gentiles. In Acts 10 and 48, it said that Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In the household of Lydia, the apostle preached to them down by the river. And in Acts 16 and 15, and when she and her household were baptized, of course, Paul and Silas were cast into prison, but they converted the jailer there. And the Bible says in Acts 16 and 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Then the last one is Acts 18 and 8 concerning the Corinthians. And when Paul preached there, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Why would people deny that baptism is essential to salvation? If we're going to restore New Testament Christianity, we've got to restore the plan of salvation that was given by the apostles and the early evangelists. And they must obey the Lord, and a part of that is to be baptized. Further, the restoration movement means a restoration of the New Testament names of its followers. You know, sometimes people will say, there's nothing in a name. A rose by any other name smells as sweet. You know, that's not only contrary to the Word of God, it's contrary to logic. I'd ask you tonight, which would you rather be called, Judas or James? Demas or Timothy? Adolf or George? We all believe that there's something in a name. When Jesus our Lord was born into this world, Joseph was told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That word Jesus means Jehovah saves. Salvation comes through Jehovah. Jesus received that name because there was something in a name. Consider Abraham. At first we read of him, he was Abram, which meant an exalted father. But God changed his name to Abraham, which meant the father of a multitude. And he told him about it in Genesis 17 and 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. Yes, there's something in a name. What about the people of God? By what name should they be called? Well, they're called disciples time and again in the Scriptures, 20 times in the book of Acts. They're called brethren because Jesus in Matthew 23 and 8 said, But you do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. They were called believers by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4 and 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Then, of course, the Apostle called them saints. That's holy ones. Romans, the first chapter, the seventh verse. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. 
but the, the special name is the name I think that was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah the 62nd chapter and the second verse where he said the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness kings shall see your glory and you shall be called by a new name and that was fulfilled in Acts 11 and 26 where it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch that's the name that gives glory unto the Lord Jesus Christ even Agrippa recognized that as a, a credible name he said you almost persuade me to be a Christian Acts 26 and 28 and then the Apostle Peter lets us know that it is a sanctioned name when he said yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in this matter first Peter 4 and 16 but what about the collective body what about a congregation of God's people what should they be called well sometimes it's just simply called the church and Philemon 2 to the church in your house it is also called the church of God in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 to the church of God which is at Corinth it is the church that belongs unto God and gives God the glory. But then the apostle, call it the name that I believe is the best of all of them. When he said in Romans 16 and 16, the churches of Christ salute you. It was Jesus who said, I'll build the church. It was Jesus who purchased the church with his own precious blood. Even Luther on one occasion said, Call not yourselves Lutherans, but call yourselves after him from whom our doctrine comes. Call yourselves Christians. Well, we could talk about the restoration of the worship of the church, the organization of the church. We can even talk about the spirit and the attitude of that first church. It was a spirit that was motivated by love. The apostle says, the love of Christ compels me. Yes, there's so many things of that first century church that needs to be restored. But what's the desired results of this plea? Suppose that all of the religious groups of our world should accept this plea and they would determine we're going to restore New Testament Christianity in all of its purity and in all of its simplicity. What would be the result of that? Well, of course, there would be the restoration of the original church in its faith, its doctrine, its organization, its government, its unity, its worship, its terms of admission. All of this would be fully restored uh, to the world. And in every community, there would be a congregation of God's people who were simply Christians only. What a blessing that would be. And then all professed followers of Jesus Christ would be just Christians as they were in the days of the apostles. There would be no fences. There would be no walls. There would be no hyphenated Christians. We'd just all be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all Christians would belong to the one body of Christ. You know, the body of Christ is large enough to contain all of those who would come in obedience to His will. And then, of course, all would wear 
scriptural names, names that would honor the Lord. All would believe the one divine creed and all would be governed one by the one divine rule of faith and practice. All of us would wear the names that honor God and that honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And there would be union and there would be cooperation in mission efforts. You know, one of the saddest things to my mind is that people will go to Africa and they'll go to all of these foreign countries and they will carry their own brand of Christianity. But if this plea should be recognized by all, then all would preach the same doctrine and these people would not be confused by all of the multitude different faiths and practices that are carried on by people here in the United States of America. And then there, of course, would be the accomplishment of the mission of the church. What is that mission? Well, it's the same mission that Jesus had. In Luke, the 19th chapter, the 10th verse, he said, I've come that they may be saved. I've come to the world that the people might be saved. That was his mission. And that's the mission of the Lord's church. And then Jesus' earnest prayer would be answered. What was that prayer? That prayer was that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. In other words, my friends, we can have that restoration of New Testament Christianity and we can have that unity for which our Lord prayed. But that's going to happen only when people return to the faith and practice of that first century church. Now in conclusion, I want to give you kind of a practical application of this plea that we're offering to the world and especially to the religious world. Just suppose that the preachers of this town should decide that they were going to have one of those old time union meetings and preachers of every background would gather together and they would preach to the people of the world. But it would be agreed that they, because of all their religious differences, would preach only that which they could find in the Bible. And if people wanted to be saved, they would give them the same plan that was given by the apostles and the early evangelists. They would have to believe in Jesus, repent of their sins, confess their faith in Him as the Son of God, and be baptized in water for the remission of their sins. Suppose that meeting goes on for a month. And during that month, 100 people come in obedience to that old, that New Testament plan of our Lord. Well, of course, they would become what? What would those people be? Well, we'd have to agree they would be Christians. They would be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ because they obeyed the same plan that was obeyed by them in the first century. But suppose these preachers, as preachers would do, say, would say, you come to my church, or you come to my church, and all of these 100 people should say, no, you have preached to us the gospel, and we are going to establish a church right here in this place, and we're going to come together and worship God just exactly as the New Testament teaches us to do. 
And so they established that church. And of course, they have been, they have been, they have received the uh, the privilege of obeying the gospel, and so they offer that privilege to others. And people begin to obey the gospel, and they add to their number, and they become so large that they have to establish another church in another part of the country or the city, and then they reach out to other states and to other countries. Now, what would that be? Would that be another sect? Would that be another denomination? No. That would simply be the church of the Lord. And that's what this church, and churches like it all over this country and in other countries, that's what we're pleading for, is to restore that original church just as Jesus and His apostles established it. I don't know what your mind is tonight. There may be someone here tonight who's not a Christian. You've never obeyed the gospel of Christ. What a wonderful opportunity you have tonight to become a child of God. Obey that simple plan that was given uh, 2,000 years ago to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess your faith, be baptized. Come forward in obedience to that. If you strayed away from your Lord, come back. Always stand for the sea.